right now we're in the book of Jeremiah. If you'd open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 48 or navigate on your tablet or phone. Jeremiah 48, it's a long chapter. We're going to touch on certain aspects of the chapter. Jeremiah 48, the topic, Jeremiah uses a vineyard metaphor to describe the false pride of the Moabites, the title of our message, the days of wine and posers. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Now we have it open before us, and we have a chance right now, Lord, as we pray to open our hearts and lives to the work of your spirit, to take your word and minister to us in ways that we don't even understand. Whatever needs we've come with, Lord, you're the fulfillment of them. You speaking to our hearts, words of love, words of grace, words of compassion, words of forgiveness, words of exhortation. And so, Lord, just let us be open to your work in this place, in our church, and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. After pictures of Capri Sun juice pouches containing mold went viral on social media sites, company officials released a statement. They said in part, among the many, many millions of pouches we sell each year, it does happen from time to time because the product is preservative free. If mold does occur, we completely agree that it can be unsightly and gross, but it is not harmful and is more of a quality issue than a safety issue. Yeah. <laughs> At least they're honest. I got kudos to them. It almost makes me want to not throw all my Capri Sun away. You ever, you ever been drinking something and thought, eh, this just doesn't taste right? Oh, wow. How old is this thing? Regardless the relative safety of drinking moldy juice, it's a sign that something went wrong. Something went wrong with the Old Testament nation of Moab. Jeremiah is going to compare them to wine that has been fermenting too long in its container and has become full of dregs and lees, the unwanted sediments that settle to the bottom and can ruin the scent and the taste of the wine. As to the root problems, Jeremiah will tell us there were two. The Moabites exalted themselves above God and they preferred a life of material ease to one of worshiping the living God. I'll organize my thoughts around two questions suggested by the text. Number one, would you describe yourself as being exalted or as exalting? And number two, would you describe yourself as being at ease or as emptied? First of all, let's take a look at being exalted versus exalting. Verse one reads like an announcement in that weird public notices section of the classified ads. It says, against Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, woe to Nebo, for it is plundered. Kerjathim is shamed and taken. The high stronghold is shamed and dismayed. That kind of sets the tone for where this entire chapter goes. We're in a section of Jeremiah that's a series of prophecies against the Gentile nations surrounding Judah in the 6th century BC. Some are well known to us, like Egypt, the Philistines, Damascus, and Babylon. Others are little known to us, like Moab and Ammon and Edom. Some, I'd wager, are unknown to us, like Kedar, Hazor, and Elam. The Moabites were mostly hostile to the Jews throughout their history together. A couple of memorable incidents stand out. 
At the time of the exodus from Egypt, the Moabites would not allow the Jews to pass through their land. It created tremendous inconvenience for uh, the Jews on their way. A little later, their king Balak hired a prophet named Balaam to curse the Jews. He couldn't do it, but he did give the king a strategy that would wreak havoc upon the Jews. Just send beautiful Moabite priestesses into their camp, and the Jewish men will lie with them and bring a judgment from God upon themselves. He did, they did, 24,000 Israelites were killed by God in a plague before it was over. And so the Moabites and the Israelites, very strained relationships. The prophecies of this chapter mention a slew of Moabite cities. The first 10 verses of our chapter contain prophecies against certain Moabite cities. Scanning the verses, you see Kerjatham, Heshbon, Madman, Horonaim, and Luhith. Later in the chapter, in verses 18 through 25, you see Dibon, Eror, Arnon, Holon, Jezah, Mephath, Bethgamul, and Bethmeon, Kerioth, and Basra. Still later, in verses 31 through 34, you're going to read of Kerheres, Sibma, Elehela, and Zoar. Verse 24 and 25, you read, On all the cities of the land of Moab, far or near, the horn of Moab is cut off, and his arm is broken, says the Lord. His horn, referring to strength, would be cut off, and his arm broken by the nation of Babylon. Drop down to verses 40 through 46 because they give us details to Moab's defeat at the hands of Babylon. Beginning in verse 40, for thus says the Lord, behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. Kerioth is taken, the strongholds are surprised. The mighty men's hearts in Moab on that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. And Moab shall be destroyed as a people because he exalted himself against the Lord. Fear and the pit and the snare shall be upon you, O inhabitant of Moab, says the Lord. He who flees from the fear shall fall into the pit. He who gets out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For upon Moab, upon it, I will bring the year of their punishment, says the Lord. Those who fled understood Uh, excuse me, those who fled stood under the shadow of Heshbon because of exhaustion. But a fire shall come out of Heshbon, a flame from the mist of Sihon, and shall devour the brow of Moab, the crown of the head of the sons of Tumult. Woe to you, O Moab, the people of Chemosh perish, for your sons have been taken captive and your daughters captive. Chemosh here is not a city, it's the name of the Moabites' primary god, their primary deity. Like all idols, it was powerless to save them. God would exercise his prerogative to judge a nation for its wickedness, and there was nothing they could do to stop it. They had no power to stop it. Actually, there was something they could have done, but they failed to do it. They could have repented and God would have relented. Look at verse 47. The Lord says, yet I will bring back the captives of Moab in latter days, says the Lord. Thus far is the judgment of Moab. This lets us know that God took no pleasure in judging them. It was his desire to save them, and he would, in fact, spare a remnant and bring them back. Commentators are divided as to whether this phrase in the latter days means at the time King Cyrus of Persia 
uh, after he defeated the Babylonians, allowed many nations held captive by Babylon to return to their native lands, or whether we are looking beyond our own time to the future millennial kingdom when there will somehow be a revival of the nation of Moab. Uh, We're just not certain. But the point is, God wanted to minister to the Moabites. He, He takes no pleasure in the destruction of individuals or of nations. Uh, His heart is to save, but his holiness requires that he judge unrepented sin. Now, the mention of all these cities got me thinking, just city after city after city. Uh, It got me thinking how that cities have their own certain personalities or maybe characteristics is a better word. We think of Las Vegas, for example, and the, the, the nickname we give it is Sin City. And then we go there anyway. Seems kind of weird. I'm not putting you down if you have to go to Las Vegas, but it seems kind of weird for a Christian. Where are you going? Sin City. It's kind of the opposite of what you might want to do. I know uh, the pastor, John Michaels of Calvary Chapel, one of the Calvary chapels in Las Vegas, uh, he even says it's no place for a Christian to live. Uh, It's just, it's you know, they're trying to be family friendly, but in a really weird, pornographic, gross, immoral way. Uh, and so I, I don't know how that works out. Sin City. New Orleans, called the Big Easy officially, unofficially is called the Big Sleazy. <laughs> Did you know that? Probably not because you didn't know what a New York egg cream was. <laughs> Some of you are given to calling Berkeley Berserkly, <laughs> right? Have you ever heard that before? Don't tell me you haven't heard that before. It's, and they have earned it. They've earned the right to be called Berserkly. Moabite cities taken together had a distinct characteristic. We saw it when we read verse 42. It's repeated if we go back up to verse 26. In other words, it's twice in this chapter, so we can't miss it. Verse 26 says, make him drunk because he exalted himself against the Lord. In both verses, Moab is said to have exalted himself against the Lord. The Lord. And so if you're reading through this judgment city after city and you're thinking, what's the judgment all about? Number one, it's about exalting themselves against the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, it turns out it can mean two things, and both of them are interesting and important. First, when you exalt yourself against the Lord, you are rejecting God and going your independent way. It means that the Moabites thought they were self-sufficient. They didn't think they had any need for the God of the Hebrews. God calls this pride. In verse 29, you read, we have heard the pride of Moab. He is exceedingly proud of his loftiness and arrogance and pride and the haughtiness of his heart. And so he's got pride. He's exceedingly proud, lofty, arrogant, pride, and haughty. It's as if Jeremiah is heaping up words to create a literary pedestal for Moab to be seen standing on in his pride. Regarding pride, one researcher wrote this and said, the Moabites were a lusty people with sophisticated tastes and strong appetites. Moab was financially secure. They were accustomed to plenteous harvests of summer fruits and an abundance of wine. As a result of their prosperity and their skill in satisfying the lusts of the flesh, Moab became exceedingly proud. And so the Moabites 
not really bothered too much by other nations, uh, given to making wine and fulfilling the lusts of their flesh, uh, kind of cruising along as a nation, saw no need for a relationship with the true God, with the living God, and began to think it was their own wits and wisdom and wherewithal by which they were being blessed. If a nation prospers, any nation, whether they are Uh, claiming to be a Christian nation or not, it's only because God has chosen to bless them. Forget that, and in his timing, God will raise up another nation or nations to conquer you. Uh, When and how that's gonna happen, that depends on a lot of other factors in terms of God's providence, Uh, but if God is blessing any nation, uh, or if any nation is blessed, rather, God is the one doing it, and he can just as easily withdraw that. Now, there's a second meaning to this phrase, exalted himself against the Lord. There's a document called the Targum. It's a paraphrase of the Hebrew scriptures in Aramaic. Jews began to use it when Hebrew was no longer commonly spoken among all the Jews. Interesting, uh, in the New Testament era, for example, you read of Paul the apostle when he he gives his pedigree as a... uh, a Jew. At one point he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. It doesn't mean that he was just a super Jew. It meant that he was, uh, he grew up in a home where Hebrew was the main language and he went to synagogues where Hebrew was the language that they were taught in. As opposed to the other homes of Jews and synagogues where Aramaic was spoken. There were uh, Jews that were called Hellenist Jews, Hellenism after the Greek culture, who wanted to kind of be, they wanted to be Jews, but they wanted to be assimilated into Greek culture as well, and so they didn't speak Hebrew or study in Hebrew, and so to bring all of this together, uh, they all spoke Aramaic, and there was this document, the Targum, which was a paraphrase of the Jewish scriptures. In that Targum, our words from verse 26 and 42 are translated exalted himself against the people of the Lord. That's how Jews would understand these verses, that the Moabites exalted themselves against the Israelites. What this means is that they didn't think that the Israelites were the people of God. Uh, They didn't give them any credit for being a special nation. For example, in verse 27, you read, Was not Israel a derision to you? Was he found among thieves? For whenever you speak of him, you shake your head in scorn. And so the the Moabites refused to acknowledge the God of Israel, and they refused to acknowledge that Israel was a special people on the face of the earth. Now, we talk a lot... uh, politically as Christians about it being a good idea for our nation, the United States, to remain an ally of Israel uh, because God says that he will bless those who bless Israel and he will curse those who curse Israel. I think we could take it another step further too and we also not just say that Israel is our ally but we ought to publicly acknowledge, this is gonna sound weird, but we need to publicly acknowledge that Israel is the special people of the God of the Bible. They are. It isn't too many years ago that you'd hear a lot more talk about the Bible, Jesus Christ, God, these things in our public forum, in the public arena, uh, when at least most people said they were Christians. 
And so, you know, today you might think, well, no politician is going to come out and say that we should be an ally with Israel because they are the special people of the God of the Bible. Why not? It's true. And the Moabites, one of the reasons they were judged, not just because they weren't an ally of Israel, but because they refused to acknowledge Israel's special place in the plan of God. For exalting themselves above God and his people, the Moabites were conquered. Though we are not Moabites, not by physical descent, we can be by choice. We can choose ease as our driving principle when God would have us willing to empty ourselves serving him. They were a lusty people with sophisticated tastes and appetites, financially secure, accustomed to plenty. Notwithstanding the real sufferings of certain individuals in our nation, from deficits and sequestration and the housing boom and all of those kinds of things. For the most part, Americans could fit that description or they would like to. Most Americans would like to be a lusty people with sophisticated tastes and appetites financially secure, accustomed to plenty and prosperity. That's kind of the American dream. At the very least, I'd have to say that the basic worldview of most Americans is skewed towards secular things. For example, on almost any poll ever taken, when Americans are asked, what is the number one problem in America? Almost always, by a huge margin, they will answer the economy. The number one problem in America is sin. Because if people would repent of their sin and be saved, we wouldn't have trouble with the economy or anything else for that matter. We would be a nation that God was blessing. Um, I think only, this is gonna sound funny, but I think only God can pay off our deficit. When I hear the deficit numbers, how many trillion dollars is it now? Somebody shout it out, you must know. Is it 16 trillion dollars? It might as well be 100 trillion dollars or a gazillion dollars. You know, but God can pay it off. In my life, When I first became a Christian, I was upside down in debt, and a a lot of other terrible things were going on in my life, and God just took care of it. I didn't even know how he was, I don't even know to this day how he did it. And so the number one problem in America is sin, and we need to repent. If we're still being blessed, it's only because God is blessing us. But how long can God bless us if we refuse to acknowledge that Israel is his special nation and we're not really that close an ally to them? And if most of our people, certainly most people who are not Christians, are a lusty people with sophisticated tastes and appetites who want to be financially secure and accustomed to plenty. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, the the prosperity aspect of it, as long as we're acknowledging God. And so instead of being exalted, we need to return to exalting God, and I know you believe that too. Now, would you describe yourself as being at ease or as being emptied? Jeremiah also compared Moab to a vineyard and its wine, and he compared the Babylonians who were coming to wine workers. Look at verses 11 and 12. Moab has been at ease from his youth. He has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, nor has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him, and his scent has not changed. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. I shall send him wine workers who will tip him over and empty his vessels and break the bottles. Moabites were very proficient, sophisticated winemakers. 
In verses 32 and 33, you read this lament for their vines. It says, O vine of Sibma, I will weep for you with the weeping of Jazer. Your plants have gone over the sea. They reach to the sea of Jazer. The plunderer has fallen on your summer fruit and on your vintage. Joy and gladness are taken from the plentiful field and from the land of Moab. I have caused wine to fail from the wine presses. No one will tread with joyous shouting, no joyous shouting. This is the kind of language you'd employ, for example, if the Napa Valley were uh, invaded by some foreign army. Those people who are into wine would think, oh, the vines. There will be no more vintage from the Napa Valley. We'll be forced to drink French wine. You know, that kind of a thing. So this is a lament for wine. Now, there are a ton of competing opinions on the actual process in those days of making wine. What we can say for sure from the Bible is that after the grapes had been trodden or somehow crushed, the resulting juice was poured into large storage jars, which were sealed with clay, leaving only a small vent hole to bleed off the fermentation gases. During that time, certain solid byproducts of the fermentation would settle to the bottom. These are called dregs or lees. In order to complete the winemaking process, this fermenting juice was poured from its original jars into fresh jars. This also involves straining out the dregs and the lees, that sediment, otherwise it would ruin the wine uh, by leaching off gases and tastes. Now, being sophisticated winemakers, the Moabites would never think of leaving wine fermenting on its lees indefinitely. It would ruin the vintage, and they were too good as vintners to allow that to happen. And so this is a potent illustration for folks dedicated to winemaking. God tailored an illustration to their situation. He says, you're proud of your winemaking. You think as a nation, you're like excellent wine. But I've got news for you. You've been too long settled on your lees. You're like a bottle of Ripple. Is Ripple still, anybody? Nobody, I didn't offend anybody just now, did I? <laughs> Pastor Gene says, Ripple's no good, honey. Better grab the Thunderbird. But... Uh, <laughs> Hey, look, I never preferred wine when I was a drunk. Uh, it used to upset my stomach, but I know rot gut wine, you know, and, and we used to drink Ripple or Thunderbird because you could get it for like a quarter, I think, for a gallon. I mean, it was just, just awful stuff. Like grape juice that had been neglected while fermenting, there was nothing to do but tip the jars, empty them out, and break them. This is really powerful to a wine culture. And I would suggest something to you. Think about this. You might try, people you're ministering to, you might try and think of something in their life uh, by which you can illustrate the gospel. Uh, and, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, what are they into? And, and ask God to give you maybe an illustration or a word picture for them. Now, God intended all of this to communicate a spiritual truth. They had neglected spiritual things. They were content to live in relative ease, enjoying the bounty God provided, but refusing to acknowledge that any of their prosperity came from God. I especially like the phrase in verse 11, therefore his taste remained in him and his scent has not changed. Uh, it's referring to wine, of course, but it's an insightful description of a non-believer. 
Human beings are described in the Bible as being born dead in trespasses and sins. A dead person, spiritually speaking, has certain tastes for sin. And a dead person, spiritually speaking, has the spiritual stench of being in the world, uh, of, being, of being dead in the world. Now, God's not content to leave people in that natural state. Jesus came into the world to die and then rise from the dead to offer the forgiveness of sins and to make you a new creature in Christ. The Holy Spirit is in the world seeking to convict men of their sin, of their need for righteousness, and of judgment that is coming after death. Jesus on the cross was lifted up, he said, so he could draw all men to himself. He is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Remain in your natural state, and you're like a grape juice left too long fermenting. You become settled in your pride, thinking you are self-sufficient. You end up worshiping some chemesh as your deity who cannot save you. I think we can also use this winemaking illustration to encourage believers. Dregs and lees cannot be allowed to ruin wine. We said that as the dregs sank to the bottom, the winemakers would pour the liquid back into another vessel. They actually did this multiple times, back and forth from vessel to vessel, each time being careful not to pour out the dregs into the next container. This was their method of making the most excellent wine. God is an excellent vintner. We would expect then for him to constantly pour us into new vessels so that we are not too long settling on sediments that can ruin us. Even after we're saved, there are lots of ways we can become settled. In the church, for example, we can get settled into certain traditions, closed off to trying new methods of ministry. We become what the Bible calls an old wineskin into which he cannot pour new wine. Or we can borrow someone else's methods of ministry rather than seeking the direction and power of God the Holy Spirit. Or we can utilize methods that have been developed out in the world and seek to apply them to the church. The church should never smell like the world. We don't want to have that scent, that aroma, that taste. In our personal lives, this settling has application to giving in to our flesh. Pastor Chuck Smith writes and he says, it's tragic when Christians get settled in the things of the flesh. At one time in their Christian walks, they were shocked that people could do such evil things. They'd say, I would never do that. But after a while, you find them doing the same things and becoming settled in them. This impurity actually begins to permeate the whole life. Life begins to be colored by the flesh. It begins to smell of the things of the flesh, begins to taste of the things of the flesh. Now, the flesh is that principle in our human bodies that remains after we are saved that demands we fulfill our sinful appetites or that we satisfy our normal appetites in a sinful way. In keeping with our illustration, we would say that as long as we are in these bodies, some dregs, some lees are going to remain. Knowing this, you ought to regularly ask the Lord to pour you out. Lord, pour me from vessel to vessel, purify me, work in me. Don't be surprised then when something unsettles your life because pouring is an unsettling process. You don't really need to ask God. He's gonna do it anyway. He's too good a vintner to leave you alone. He has something better for you than just for you to settle on your dregs and in your lees. 
but it's better to cooperate because you weren't born again to become a bottle of ripple. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much that you love us so much to uh, direct your Holy Spirit to take words and bring them into our hearts so that we can meditate upon them, uh, so that we can hear your voice and see your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be conformed into uh, his image, Lord, and uh, from glory to glory, as it were, uh, become more like Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the highlights that you gave us from it, Lord. We certainly don't want to be uh, like the Moabites in any respect. And we are excited, Lord, if that's the right word, about being poured from vessel to vessel as you make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. As we continue this morning in an attitude and a posture of prayer, um, as we've been doing for the last few Sundays, I want to take a moment and reflect on the word of God and our worship of God and let the Lord speak to our hearts. As the word was read and taught, whether you jotted down notes or not, a few things probably stood out to you. Maybe it was just one thing, but it was that one thing that God the Holy Spirit took and brought to bear upon your heart, dividing as only he can between your soul and your spirit. I'm guessing it is probably a word of encouragement as you now see what you are going through as the Lord's pouring you from vessel to vessel, purifying you. It's another way of understanding what it's like to be in a certain kind of a trial, being poured from vessel to vessel so that things that you really don't want in your life are left behind. Maybe you were wondering why he would allow what is happening and now you understand that sometimes disturbances are his way of emptying you so that he can go on filling you. None of this means you were disobediently choosing to settle on your dregs and your lees. That could be true of some of us, I suppose, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. You might be busy serving the Lord. He might be your first love, but he still sees that a disturbance is necessary to make you more like Jesus. And then I'm sure there's folks among us Maybe you're at a place where you can't see any of this. You just can't receive it. It's not that you won't. It's just that you can't understand how what you are going through right now is a pouring from vessel to vessel to purify your life. It makes no sense or little sense. It seems to be even contrary to purification. If, if that's you, you need to just continue to trust God that he can only always do what is best for you. You need to wait on him. He has something in mind, and we don't know what it is. Another question for some of you to ponder, are you certain, are you absolutely certain that you are a Christian, that if Jesus raptured the church right now, you would be caught up to heaven to be with him? Let me give you a few minutes to ponder all of this as we sing through a chorus. You can sing with us or continue to pray or pray for others that are here. Uh, but let's set our hearts on the Lord as we sing. Uh, and then I've got some scripture I'd like to share as we close. <laughs> 